Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you guys for being here at Redemption Church uh, this morning. My name is Reggie, and uh, if you've uh, been around Redemption for a while, you know that the person that's usually on the stage is Jeremy Carr. Um, Jeremy is on sabbatical for a few months, uh, so if you showed up this morning looking for Jeremy, you get me instead. I know you're excited about that. Um, but this morning, we are continuing with our series Uh, with our Advent series. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on the first couple of uh, chapters of the book of Matthew and looking very specifically at how the story of Jesus and the story of Advent and the story of Christ's coming is a true tall tale, Uh, a true story, a true story that's powerful because it's about Jesus, because it really happened, uh, because Jesus came to be present with his people, and the fact that Jesus changes everything. Um, If you're familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's an awesome little Bible for kids. Um, We've read it at my house for a few years now. Um, I would encourage if you have kids, grandkids, hope to have kids one day, work with kids, whatever, to get your hands on the Jesus Storybook Bible. And this is what it says about the story of Christmas, about the Advent. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity we have together this morning and be, uh, be together and be reminded of the true story of your coming to earth to be with your people, to be our king, to be our shepherd, to live among us, to be Emmanuel. And God, as we continue to hear from your word over the next uh, short few minutes, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that we would hear exactly what it is you would have us hear in this place this morning. God, I recognize that what I have to say is of no importance at all, but God, what you would communicate to us through your word is of utmost importance. And so God, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that you would remove me out of the way and that you would raise Jesus high even as I stand on the stage and talk. God, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of your love an instrument of the gospel, that you might be glorified and that we might be drawn to you. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Part of the power of stories is that they elicit a response, that they provoke us in some way. A good story, a great story will elicit in us a crisis. It will force us to think and evaluate and respond. It will force us to make a decision. A good story will bring us to the edge of our seats because we want to know what happens. A good story elicits a response. It forces us to think and to evaluate. This past week, I had the opportunity to go and see the movie In the Heart of the Sea, which is the new movie about um, the Essex, which is part of the basis for the book Moby Dick. And, you know, from 10 minutes into that movie until it was finished, you're on the edge of your seat because it's, there's, there's a crisis going on in the screen and you're involved and you're, you're in the middle of it. And it forces you, it provokes you, it puts you right in the middle of it. It forces you to respond. When I was young, I did not read well. Both of my 
biological parents passed away when I was eight, and there's a lot about my childhood that I just don't remember. One of the things that I don't remember is I don't remember my, my parents ever reading to me as a child. Um, and they may have, I just don't, I don't remember it. I don't have my parents around to recount those stories, right, to help me remember what happened when I was a kid. But I, do, I, I don't remember reading a lot as a kid, and I don't remember being read to a lot as a kid. Um, my girls, uh, we've read to them for a long time, and so they remember books even if they don't remember me reading them to them. Does that make sense? Like there's books that they'll remember that they know, uh, but we read them uh, and they may not ever remember me reading them to them. But, but anyway, so I had to repeat the second grade. I'm going somewhere with the story. Stay with me. Um, I had to repeat the second grade because I didn't read well. Um, and during my second year of second grade, um, there was a, like a large focus on helping me learn to read. And so in the few years after second grade, I became a voracious reader uh, because it opened a whole new world to me, right? This world of books was a whole new world that I knew nothing about. And um, to this day, I vividly remember the first book I ever read that forced a crisis within my very being. I was in the fourth or fifth grade, which is still young, right? My oldest daughter is in the fourth grade now. But I was in the fourth or fifth grade, and I read a book called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred D. Taylor. Is anybody familiar with that book? Has anybody ever heard of it? It's a kid's book. It's actually an award-winning book um, for kids, but essentially it's a story about a black family in rural Mississippi during the Great Depression. And it's about their interaction with the land and their interaction with farming, and it's about the tremendous amount of racism that they faced in the middle of the Great Depression. And I distinctly remember walking away from that book having, for the first time, come face to face with the fact um, that the part of the world that I'm from, there was a time when racism was prevalent and many people were persecuted merely for the color of their skin. And it forced a crisis within me, right? It, it, it made me evaluate. It made me think, even as a young child, it made me realize that that was not the kind of person that I wanted to be. I didn't want to be the kind of person that would persecute somebody else based merely on the color of their skin. You see, this book, this story elicited a response within me. It brought me to a point of crisis. It made me deal with what I was reading. It, it made me deal with it. It made me think about it. And it changed me, even to this very day. It's a really good story. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. And they'll be up here on the screen too, um, so you can follow along on the screen if need be. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word 
that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Matthew chapter 2, we're, intru- we're introduced to another great story. We're introduced to four main characters here in this passage, five if you count the star as a character, but essentially we're introduced to Herod the king, we're introduced to Magi from the east, we're introduced to the star, like I said, we're introduced some, to some religious scholars that Herod surrounded himself with, and of course, we see Jesus, the, the main character of this story. And it's a great story because it's 2,000 years later and we're still talking about it. And so what I want to do for a minute is just sort of unpack this passage for a second, help us understand a few things about what's going on, and then dive into what I think um, God would, would have us hear this morning Um, In this passage, we're introduced to Herod the king. It's who the wise men from the east came to see. Uh, Herod the king was uh, the ruler over Judea, the nation of Israel, for probably close to 40 years, and he died shortly after Jesus was born. Um, This is Herod the king, who you see later on in Matthew chapter 2, orders that uh, infants in Bethlehem or children in Bethlehem be killed. When he died, when Herod died, which is not long after Jesus was born, uh, his kingdom was split up among some of his heirs. Um, and so there's still some people around who are known as Herod, even after this Herod the Great dies. He was a Roman client king, meaning that he was under um, the authority of Rome. They allowed him to be there and to rule as king. He was known as a great builder. Uh, he was even... Uh, known to have worked on the temple that was in Jerusalem during the time that Jesus was alive and, uh, and, and um, on the earth in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. Uh, but he was also known to be incredibly ruthless and paranoid, having put to death religious Jews and members of his own family alike. And we see that happen later on in Matthew chapter 2. He was half Jewish, though, and half Idumean, which was a place south of Israel, uh, that's in the Old Testament known as Edom. And so despite being half Jewish and despite his attempt to uh, placate sort of the Jewish uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem and despite the fact that he helped work on the temple and rebuild it, uh, the local population was known to complain that he just didn't act very Jewish. He wasn't very religious. Uh, an interesting fact about Herod here is that the Roman Senate had given him the title of king of Judea or alternately king of the Jews. That was a title that was granted to him. And so moving on from Herod, uh, we see some other guys here, the Magi from the east. Uh, we often sing at Christmas time a hymn called We Three Kings, right? Everybody's familiar with that song. We've, we've sung it before. You've sung it before probably. Probably hear it on the radio. And that song has led us to believe that there were three kings or three wise men that came from the east to worship Jesus when he was in a manger. Because that's what happens at Trinity Hospital up on, you know what I'm talking about, on Wheeler Road. Uh, The Magi come across the lawn to get to the nativity scene over the course of December. But anyway, 
So that song has led us to believe there were three kings who came from the east to worship Jesus in the manger. Uh, In reality, the passage here tells us that Mary and Joseph were living in a house with Jesus. So we don't really know when this was after the time of Jesus' birth. Um, but, But these wise men come from the east to worship Jesus. There are church traditions going back hundreds and hundreds of years saying that there were uh, three kings from ancient areas of the world known as Babylon, Persia, and maybe India or uh, the area that's currently um, Pakistan. Uh, We don't really know. There's other early church tradition uh, that say these guys were from what's modern-day Yemen, Uh, but there's no real way for us to, to figure that out to where they came from. Um, There's scholarly work that says these guys may have originated from the group of people who originated in Babylon that Daniel was a part of. You remember Daniel in the Old Testament who part of what he did was interpret dreams and uh, was a wise man for the king. There are church traditions that say there were three of these guys. There's other church traditions that say there was a dozen of them. There are other other church traditions that say there were more than that. Uh, But we don't really know where they're from. We don't really know Uh, how many there were. We know they brought three gifts, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and we know that they came from somewhere east of Jerusalem. Uh, But that's really all the text gives us, other than the fact that they were called Magi. Uh, What we do know is that these guys showed up from the east because they saw something spectacular happen in the heavens. They were watching the stars and the moon and the planets and whatever else, and they saw something spectacular happen And whatever that was inspired them uh, jointly with whatever information they had um, to go to Jerusalem to find the king. We don't know if they were familiar with Old Testament prophecy. We don't know if an angel told them to go. We don't know if there was some other legend that prompted them to say, hey, this spectacular event that's happening in the heavens correlates to the king being born in Israel. We don't know. What we do know is that these guys, based on their name Magi, were probably pagan astrologers and astronomers that may or may not have been thought of as magicians and sorcerers who came from somewhere east of Israel to worship Jesus. And so the picture I want you to get is that Gandalf and Dumbledore showed up to worship Jesus. That's what's happening here. Not necessarily ruling kings, even though that may have been the case, uh, but more than likely... Court magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, magicians, something along those lines. The overall point here is that we have some non-Jewish people from the East coming to worship Jesus. The point here is that some of the first worshipers of Jesus are pagan court magicians and astrologers or wise men, not from Israel, but from somewhere else entirely. More than likely they were Gentiles and not Jewish at all. And yet, they came to worship Jesus. And these Gentile astrologers, they followed a star to get to Jesus. That's what the passage tells us. They saw something in, in the heavens that happened um, that, that, that brought them to the point of traveling to Israel to see Jesus. You know, over and over, the Bible often baffles our curiosity about just how things happened. How did this star get the Magi to come from the east, wherever they're from, to Jerusalem? We don't really know. 
It does not say that it led them or it went before them. In verse 2, it says they saw a star in the east. And for some reason, they were led to, to correlate that star to the birth of the king. And when they travel from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, after they get to Jerusalem and talk to Herod, it's about a five-mile walk. But the passage says the star led them, and then it stood over the place where the child was. How did that happen? And the answer is we simply just don't know. There are numerous efforts to explain it in terms of conjunctions of planets lining up together or comets or supernovas or miraculous lights or whatever else, and we just don't know which one is true. Um, in this episode of Christianity Today that I got in the mail the other day, uh, there's actually an article about um, one biblical scholar who believes that the star was a comet and some work that he, done and I that, that he had done and I believe a book that was going to be published about it. On a side note, I see Kate Minnix over there. The cover story this week belongs to Kate, so make sure you get Christianity Today and read it. Um, but we don't know what the star was. We don't know how it led them. We have no idea what it was. We just don't know. What we do know is that God wielded the power of the universe to bring these people to worship Jesus. God did something miraculous to get these people to come to Jerusalem and to worship Jesus. And because we don't know a lot about the Magi, because we don't know a lot about the star, because there's a lot from this passage that I, don't, that I can't explain, what I want to do is spend a little bit of time uh, focusing on something that we can't explain and something that is vitally important, and that's the person of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Verse 2 announces clearly whom this story is really about. In verse 2, the Magi say to Herod, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This story is about a newborn child destined to be king of the Jews and king of the world. King of the Jews and king of the world. In verse 2, when the Magi show up and they ask Herod, where is he who was born king of the Jews? I don't want you to miss the polar opposites that are happening right there in that very passage. The Magi are confronting an illegitimate king of the Jews and asking him, where is he who has been born the real king? I mean, it's, it's so bold, right? They get right up in Herod's face and they essentially say to him, you're not the king, where's the king? And that leads Herod down the road to do some crazy stuff. But verse 4 makes it real clear what the Magi were really meaning by king of the Jews, because Herod gathers the chief priests and the scribes, and they ask the chief priests and the scribes where the Messiah was to be born. Herod had been called king of Judea and king of the Jews for almost 40 years, but nobody ever called him the Messiah. Messiah means the long-awaited God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other rule and bring um, in the end of history and establish the kingdom of God and never die or never lose his reign. We don't know how the wise man correlated the star 
and a king and the Messiah all together. But it's clear that Herod and the scribes and the Pharisees are starting to put the puzzle together. Herod realized the Magi were searching for the final king to end all kings, the Messiah, Jesus, who would die on a cross with a sign above him that said, King of the Jews. And Herod, despite being half Jewish, didn't even know the simple scriptures about the Messiah. So he asked the scribes and the Pharisees, and the one text they mention when he asks them, where is this king supposed to be born, is Micah chapter 5, that we read a little bit ago. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The purpose for which these scribes and chief priests uh, quoted this scripture was simply to answer the question of where. Of where was the king to be born? What they didn't recount, at least not what's recorded in scripture, is the rest of what that passage says. Because they might have seen in Micah chapter 5 where it says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Who is it that's being born king of the Jews? We have the privilege of looking at this story 2,000 years later and knowing that we're talking about Jesus, knowing based on what scripture leads us to understand that we're talking about Jesus, who was God, come to earth as a child. We're talking about God incarnate. We're talking about God walking among the earth as his people, or or with his people. We're talking about Jesus, who is present, Emmanuel. And that's where this story derives its power from, from the very presence of Jesus himself. These folks maybe missed it just a little bit. Do you remember what I said uh, about stories just a few moments ago? Good stories, really good stories should elicit in us a response. Good stories force us to respond. Good stories maybe cause a crisis within our very being. Good stories make us reflect and consider and ponder. And in this passage, the Magi, King Herod, these religious scholars that are around Herod, they are all confronted with the fact that the Messiah has come to be present with his people, to be the king to end all kings, to be God, the king with his people, shepherding his people they are seeing the story of Scripture unfold before their very eyes. They are seeing God bringing to pass everything he had ever promised. The Messiah, the king to end all kings, the shepherd to shepherd his people forever, the king who would reign forever and there would be no end to his kingdom. They are seeing this very truth play out right before their eyes and they're forced to respond It's the story to end all stories. It's the greatest story there ever was. And right before their eyes, it's happening. 
And we have the privilege of seeing exactly how they responded. Here's the thing. Advent, Christmas, when we understand the story of Christmas, when we understand that at Advent we are celebrating the birth of Christ, we're celebrating the birth of God come to earth as a person to live among his people, to be with his people, to shepherd his people, to rule over his people until the end. We're forced to deal with that same truth. We're forced to deal with the same story that Herod and the Magi and the religious scholars around Herod are forced to deal with. Christmas reminds us that Jesus came to be our king, to be with us, to shepherd us, and to rule forever. And if this story is true, if this story is true, then I have to ask the question, how are you responding to this story? What's your response? Where does this story bring you to? What's your response to the truth that the greatest story that's ever told is playing out before our eyes in Scripture and during this short month of December when we focus on gifts and when we focus on being together with our families and when we focus on the busyness of the holiday season, how are we responding to the truth that what we're celebrating is Christ come to earth to live among his people, to be with his people, to shepherd his people, to rule his people. How are we responding to that? I have to ask you that question. I would be remiss if I didn't. In this short story from the first 12 verses of Matthew, there are three very clear responses to the true story of Jesus that we see in this passage. We see a response of indifference. We see a response of outright rejection. And we see a response of utter reverence and worship. We see the first response of indifference in the action of the religious leaders around Herod, the chief priest and the scribes. I I want you to understand, these are the most learned people that Herod could gather around him at the time. They are Jewish religious leaders. They are Jewish religious scholars. They know the Old Testament. When Herod asked them, where is the king going to be born? They knew what he was talking about. But Jesus is a non-entity in their lives, despite the fact that we're talking about the most learned Jewish scholars of the day who knew the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah as well as anyone else. These were the people who should have been expecting the Messiah. But verse 4 shows us that these people tell Herod the truth, but then they don't do anything. They just say, he's supposed to be born In Bethlehem, the sheer silence and inactivity of these leaders is overwhelming in view of the magnitude of what was happening. The Messiah was here. Somebody showed up and said, the Messiah is here, and they just blow those people off. Now, granted, they're crazy astrologers from the East, but at least it bears acting upon the information that they have, and they don't. The inactivity on the part of the chief priest is staggering. Why not go with the Magi to see what they're talking about? And for whatever reason, they're completely uninterested in the greatest story ever playing out right in front of their eyes. They completely miss it. 
We see the second response of outright rejection from someone who is deeply threatened by Jesus, and that's obviously Herod. Uh, the second part of Matthew chapter 2 uh, records the story of how Herod sought to actually kill Jesus when he was a child. Herod is really afraid, so much so that he schemes and lies and commits mass murder just to get rid of Jesus. Herod is confronted with the true story of the rightful heir to the throne over Israel, and he responds with great fear, and he's troubled, and he's threatened, and he tries to kill Jesus because of it. It is a response of rejection. It is an outright response of fear. Maybe Herod realized that he was an illegitimate king. I don't know. Maybe he just thought he was going to lose his kingdom. I don't know. Maybe he's just paranoid and weird. I don't know. But he acts and he tries to kill Jesus because he's threatened as a part of his rejection of the story. And finally, we had the response of the Magi, a response of reverence and worship. Not counting the fact that they had to travel from somewhere to get to Israel. We don't know how far they traveled. We don't know a whole lot. But they had to put aside whatever was going on and they had to travel to Israel, to Jerusalem, to find where Jesus had been born. Putting that aside, there are at least four very specific ways in these short sets of verses where the Magi do just that. Um, revere Jesus, worship him, respond in reverence. In verse number two, it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In verse 10, it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They didn't rejoice a little bit. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's like a quadruple response of worship and reverence that the Magi um, do. They respond with great joy. In verse 11, it says that they fall down and worship Jesus. It says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They fell down and worshiped him. Falling to the ground is a very literal act of worship in which you're saying to someone else, you are great, and by comparison, I am low. And then going on in verse number 11, it says that they offer him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are costly gifts. They are gifts that, that matter. They are gifts that mean something. They were sacrificial in their giving. Their gifts were honoring. And it was an intense way of recognizing Jesus' value and worth. And in the act of giving these gifts, they actually fulfilled a prophecy from uh, Isaiah chapter 60 where it talks about the nations coming from afar to worship the Messiah by giving gifts of gold and frankincense. And so in a very real way, these magi worship Jesus. They give him the reverence that he's due. They fall down before him. This story that we've looked through today, here's what I want you to grasp. And then I'm going to be done in just a second. This is what I want you to see. This story is not about earthly kings, even though they play a major role in the story. 
It's not about kings who are threatened by Jesus. And it's not about kings who come from the east to worship Jesus. It's not about stars pointing the way to Jesus. Even though in this passage we see God controlling the universe to point people to Jesus. This story is about Jesus. The story is about God coming to earth in the form of a child to be with his people. This story is about God coming to earth in the form of a child to be the king to end all kings. And this morning, this story, the story of the Advent, the story of the Magi worshiping Jesus confronts us face to face with the fact that only Jesus is worthy to be king and ruler and shepherd of his people. And like the people in this passage, the Advent story is calling us to respond. The Advent story is calling us to respond. And, and I wonder, I wonder how we're going to respond. I wonder how I'm going to continue to respond over the course of December and over the course of the time that we celebrate Advent. Am I going to celebrate Advent with indifference? Am I going to respond with indifference? Am I going to reject the truth of Jesus? Or am I going to respond with reverence and worship? And so what I'm calling us to do is this. I'm calling us with a sense of reverence and worship to believe this story. The story is a true tall tale. It's a true story of God acting on behalf of his people. And so I have to call you, if it's true and it's real, and I believe it is, then I have to call you to believe the story. I have to call you to come to know Jesus as the king and the ruler who came to earth as a baby on our behalf. So I'm calling you to believe the story, whether for the first time or to believe it again or to believe it over and over and over. I'm calling you to believe this story. I'm calling you to, in reverence, share this story with your families, with your missional communities, with your friends who are followers of Jesus. Practice this story. Talk about this story. It's a great story, and it's true, and it really happened. So let's talk about it. Let's not forget it. Let's believe it. Let's recount it. Let's share this story with one another. And finally, I'm calling you to tell this story as an act of worship, as an act of reverence to those who don't believe it, to those we interact with on a daily basis, whether it's in our neighborhoods, uh, our homes, our jobs, our schools, wherever it is that God has given us realms of influence. As God gives you opportunity, tell this story. It's powerful. It is the greatest story that has ever been told. And it forces within us a response. I would ask you to respond in reverence and worship. I would ask you to respond by believing this story, by sharing this story, and by telling this story. We're going to spend the next few minutes responding uh, to what God is doing in our hearts and minds in this place this morning. In just a second, the band's going to come back up here on stage. They're going to continue to lead us in some songs and give us the opportunity to worship through singing. During this time, you also have the opportunity to stay where you are and reflect upon what it is 
that God is speaking to us this morning about responding to this story as an act of worship and as an act of reverence. If you need to ask some questions, if you need things to be clarified for you, if you want somebody to tell you what it means for Jesus to be king and ruler of your life, uh, then let me know and we'll talk or I'll get somebody uh, to talk with you about that so that you can understand more. During this time, we have the opportunity to continue to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back where if you're a part of redemption, um, you, can, you can worship through giving. And during this time as well, we're going to celebrate communion. There'll be some communion servers up here to help us facilitate communion. And we would ask you to come down the middle aisle here uh, and move out in, in, in those directions um, and take communion. And by doing so, so remember what Christ has done on our behalf. And by taking communion, uh, that's exactly what we're doing. We're remembering what Christ has done and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. Listen to God's word. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for the reminder from your word this morning that this story matters, that your story of your action on our behalf actually means something. God, thank you for the reminder that from your word, we understand that you have acted on our behalf by coming to earth as a child to live among us and eventually to die on our behalf. God, it's impossible for us to stand in this room and not celebrate your birth without recognizing that your birth leads to something. It leads to a sacrifice on our behalf. And so God, as we respond, as we worship, as we take communion and sing and pray and give and whatever else we do to respond over the next few minutes as you guide us, God, I pray that you would guide us to a point of worship, that you would guide us to a point of reverence. I pray that you would guide us to a point of seeing Jesus lifted high on our behalf, that you would continue to move in our hearts and minds that we might be drawn to you. And God, we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.